A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense. You know what it is. I don't even have to keep saying it's the home of common sense because why wouldn't you know that already? Okay, the sun is still shining, but there are some clouds on the horizon, it would seem, as we edge ever closer uh, to the festive season. As you might expect, we are preparing ourselves for the onslaught of food, of drink, of presents, and of course, of company, whatever the government is telling you, and despite all the shortages that the gloomsters are warning about. There's plenty of talk of vaccine passports. There's absolutely no reason at all uh, for you to be concerned at this stage. However, some of you are even telling me that you're worried that you might be forced out of jobs if you refuse the vaccine enthusiasm. Now, we'll bring you the latest from the front lines of the COVID wars and we'll bring you up to date on what's happening with the Northern Powerhouse and the HS2 announcements later on today. There seems to be an awful lot of people in the north of England who are not exactly very happy about the decision that Boris has made to leave them hanging high and dry. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Up first this morning, we're joined by John Rental, Chief Political Commentator for The Independent, with his take on that rather rowdy Prime Minister's questions yesterday, where unusually Sir Keir Starmer appeared to hand Boris Johnson his backside. Uh, and I'll be asking him where we go from here now that COP26 has been entirely forgotten and nobody's mentioning anything to do with climate anymore, are they? Now it's still all about migrants, it's all about sleaze, it's all about terrorism and quite rightly, these are the big stories of the day. Also, Helen Dale is here with her take on the big railway story and what it means for the north of the country. Plus, she will give us her take on the latest migrant crisis following the suicide bombing uh, in Liverpool. Jamie Jenkins also here with a rundown of what's happening in Europe on COVID restrictions, how Wales is faring now that the nation is revolting against Mark Drakeford and what the latest numbers mean for the NHS. Children are now being told to wait three months after getting the virus to again get vaccinated. It's the same old song, isn't it? And as ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what is your place of work demanding from you? You tell us and we can tell everyone else. I mean, are you actually seriously worried that you might have to get a new job? 0344 499 1000. Because it's Thursday, of course, time for the Thursday Club with Helena Nicklin. She's bringing us some Beaujolais today because it is Beaujolais week. And if you remember back to the days when we used to be very excited about Beaujolais Nouveau, that's kind of what it's going to be like. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. As ever, we've got a whole host of things to talk about, a whole host of great guests to talk to, including uh, Joe Hemmings, who's going to be giving us her take on why it is that those boxes of chocolates and those selections that you get for Christmas are never quite right. And you sometimes end up with the wrong selection. Nobody can quite explain why that's going on. 0344 499 1000 is the number. And let's talk to John Rental, Chief Political Commentator from The Independent. This is, of course, uh, Talk Radio. John, a very good morning. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. So I think that was the greatest Prime Minister's questions I can remember for a very long time. What about you? <laughs> well, it was certainly interesting. It was raw politics as uh, Boris Johnson tried to limit the damage. But uh, uh, Keir Starmer, as you say, had him on the run. Uh, and uh, they both uh, stretched parliamentary language to the extreme. Uh, Boris Johnson was told to withdraw the term misconduct. And yes. he said, I, I actually said misconduct, yes. which is a very childish, very childish I uh, thought joke. that was quite funny. Didn't you like that? Uh, quite funny. Uh, a reference to Mishkondorea, that, yeah. uh, the law firm that uh, Keir Starmer has done some work for, and Keir Starmer called Boris Boris Johnson a coward. Yes, which, uh, I, I, I thought that was, I thought that was way much worse than whatever whatever Boris had said. Because I mean, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have said it, but I mean, it's not very parliamentary language, is it? Well, no, I thought I thought calling someone a coward. I, I didn't realise that was unparliamentary. Anyway, it was unparliamentary, and uh, Keir Starmer withdrew it, mm. uh, and he withdrew it so much that he then uh, he put out a lot of social media. Uh, 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 last night um, with uh, Coward as the main headline. So uh, his his withdrawal did not... And that's, did not, uh, and that's not, uh, not at all childish, obviously, is it? <laughs> no, that was, that was steri- serious and statesman's life. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mind hypocrisy, John. Just own up to it, you know, just go for it. But no, but I mean, I, I was not in favour of the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, making out that it was somehow the wrong way to behave. Because I think if we want people to be engaged in their politics and you want people to actually like it and enjoy it and, and watch it, it needs to be like that, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I mean, it's a new it's a new development, this, that the Speaker intervenes and uh, actually sh- shut the Prime Minister up uh, three times, I think, uh, pointing out that it's Prime Minister's questions, not Leader of the Opposition's questions. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I think the Prime Minister will find ways of, uh, of pointing out what he regards as uh, Keir Starmer's mm. hypocrisy and asking, asking, he doesn't need to ask questions about Keir Starmer. He can just draw attention to the fact that Keir Starmer used to, used to take uh, paid work. Yeah. And also, as, to be honest, it's a little bit, is it, is it not a little bit churlish of Lindsay Hoyle to say, well, you can't ask him any questions because it's all part of the cut and thrust of the, of the event. I mean, Keir Starmer doesn't have to answer the questions. He can no. just parry them off in the same way that Boris doesn't answer any of the questions he gets asked. Well, it, it saves Keir Starmer having to do that dreadful uh, Ed Miliband thing of saying, oh, it's, it's Prime Minister's questions, not Leader of the Opposition's question. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, anything, anything. I mean, I always I hark back to the dreaded days of uh, Jeremy Corbyn reading from various emails that he got from Sarah from, you know, Nuneaton, who wants to put a question. I mean, that was dreadful, awful stuff. But I just, I just really enjoyed it yesterday. And I, you know, I make no. And the fact that Boris Johnson's voice was also going was a very, for me, quite an interesting metaphor of, of, of what is going on at the moment. Yeah, no, it, it was it was a very important clash because, uh, you know, what matters now uh, from from the Labour uh, point of view, is is to make sure that the the Tory party gets most of the uh, of the mud that's being thrown around. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, it is essentially uh, Tory MPs who are trying to protect their second jobs. I mean, Labour MPs don't have as many second jobs, although they do have one or two. Uh, and the thing about the expenses scandal in two thousand and nine, I mean, 
you know, for, for a start, there was a Labour government, so it it took some of the rap. Mm. But actually, it was mostly Labour MPs who went to prison. Yeah. Um, so the 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 sort of the, the blame uh, spread to both parties that time, and neither party gained a decisive uh, political advantage from it. Whereas this time, I think uh, I think the Tories are very much on mm. the defensive. Yeah, I think that's true. But I suppose the climate's slightly different, isn't it? Because of the way that the Tories have got such a big advantage in terms of numbers that they can have issues within their own party. I mean, we saw yesterday, as, as Ian Blackford pointed out, very, very, which I thought was another great moment when somebody went, where are all the Tory party backbenchers? And somebody went, they're all having, they're all doing their second jobs, which I thought was great. Um, but, you know, there is this view, isn't there, that, that within the Tory party, they can have as many splits and as many problems as they want, because there's no way they're losing the next election, no matter what. Well, yeah, well, I don't think they would be as complacent as that, to be honest. I think uh, most MPs tend to think they're going to they're going to lose their seat next time, uh, even if they're in a safe seat. So I don't know. I don't think I don't think they, they they are comfortable about this at all. I mean, we did and we did see the day before yesterday. We saw some an actual outbreak of, of Tory infighting in the House of Commons chamber mm. uh, as uh, Alicia Kearns, who is uh, quite a forthright uh, Tory MP, had a go at uh, Christopher Choke for uh, drawing attention to. Uh, the Tory party's problems on this uh, right. uh, on the second jobs issue. Yes, but I mean it is a problem because, but it's an, un, an an insoluble one in many ways because as much as Boris Johnson tried to make it all go away uh, on Tuesday night by issuing this new dictum that you can't have a second job, it's impossible to administrate. You can't say that you can't have a second job because you can't really define what a second job is. You know, is well, it writing an article for the Times or the Independent? Is it appearing on a radio show uh, and getting paid to be a presenter on that show? Is it about uh, you know taking money from a company to represent them in some way, shape, or form? You know, it's all very complicated, isn't it? Yeah, well, and what's being proposed is quite uh, quite narrow. I mean, uh, he's he's the government is suggesting copying uh, the Labour Party's plan. Uh, is suggesting to ban. Uh, consultancy jobs, right. um, you know, parliamentary consultancies. Now, how you define one of those, and it is is as you say, a, a difficult question. Right. It doesn't include. I, I don't think it includes uh, writing articles for. No, I don't think it does. But by the same token, as you well know, if they do bring in a definition of what a consultancy job is the consultants will just find a different way of doing their consultancy and define it in a different way, and they'll carry on doing it. Well, yes, but let's let's deal with that. Um, when we get there, I mean, the first thing to do is, is to ban the consultancy jobs. But as you say, but what I mean, about people who are paid by trade unions and where do they stand? Well, well, those aren't consultancies. In yeah, the but why sense. would they well, be? Uh, yeah, but, but you'd have to say, John, that that would not be fair. If I, as an individual on a Tory party, was paid £100,000 a year by some company in order to consult for them, and the yeah. guy on the other side, my opposite number, is paid £100,000 by uh, the trade union that he's affiliated with, how does he get away with it and I don't? Well, this is exactly the sort of problems that we're going to get into, and you know, do you know, would 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 being on the advisory board of a charity, um, or a, or a non-governmental uh, organisation, uh, would that count as a consultancy? Mm. Uh, does legal advice count as a consultancy? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the really tricky one for Keir Starmer because right. uh, he would then be trying to ban something that he was doing himself quite recently. Yes. And if you are involved in a company, as well as I've often said, say you own your own business and you are a, a, a director of that business, are you supposed to sell it? Are you supposed to give it up? Are you supposed to not take dividends that year because you're an MP? I mean, it makes no sense, does it? Well, no, 
Well, that's not a consultancy. I mean, unless the unless the business itself is a is a, is a consulting business. But if it's a if it's a farming business or a manufacturing business, then I, I don't think there's anybody proposing to ban uh, those kind of. Jobs. Yeah, but you, so, but you uh, could, for example, work in a farming business which is subsidised to a huge extent uh, by some big um, uh, supermarket chain, uh, and on the basis of them advising you uh, to help them out as much as you possibly can, they give you a hundred thousand quid uh, in the guise of buying some pork chops off you. Um, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, that's how you get around it, isn't it? Well, yes, there are going to be. Uh, so I'm huge... quite good at this. Maybe I should do some consulting down there with some people who need to find ways around uh, how not to be called consultants. <laughs> or maybe you should be advising the, uh, the the standards commissioner on how to how to ferret out these uh, these ways of dodging the rules. Yeah, I mean, but like everything else, I mean, I discovered this the other the other week because I can't remember which Labour Party front bencher it was that uh, has still got his wife employed in his office. But when they introduced the rule that said you couldn't employ your spouse as part of your office staff in Westminster, it didn't apply to those who were already doing it. So if you're already doing it, that was fine. So there are still there are still so there's still there are, loads. Are there really? Yeah. Well, yeah, um, yeah. That, I mean. The, all these things take take time. I mean, what 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 Boris Johnson did achieve yesterday was 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 delay. I mean, he did manage to kick it into the long grass. Yeah. And and the one the one thing that Labour wanted to 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 uh, propose uh, was a, a hard deadline of fifteen days after the end of January, right. uh, by which time you know Parliament would be forced to act. Uh, and of course, uh, Conservative MPs voted against that. Right. Um, and like all things in Westminster, it will be forgotten. Uh, people will be passed on. People will be passed over. We'll find ourselves in the midst of another scandal probably next week because I was saying this yesterday to Kate Hoey, that at the moment the government seems to be running from week to week with a completely different issue every single week. You know, like this week it's about sleaze again. Last week we were at COP26. Nobody's even talking about climate change anymore. It's gone. No, but I mean, the thing about the, the, the standard stories, the second job stories... Is that they have actually been on the front pages of, of most of the newspapers for you know, most days yes. for two weeks now. Yeah, but nobody's taking the fall for. It. I mean, Jeffrey Cox is still there. Jeffrey Cox is probably still charging a gazillion pounds an hour, even as you and I are speaking uh, from yeah. whoever it is that he's charging it to, and nothing's really changed, has it? No, and no one, no one knows whether Jeffrey Cox will be covered by the uh, the new ban or not. Well, he won't be, um, will he? Because it's not a consultancy. He's a legal advisor. He gets paid to be a legal advisor. I mean, my my view of it all is that they should put some kind of limit in terms of hours on how much you're allowed to do outside of the chamber or outside of your political job um, in terms of uh, the, the time you you can you, you you commit to it. Yeah, but then you are getting into you know real problems of enforcement and and monitoring. I mean, how do you know how many hours? Well, exactly. Three Cox has done. Mm. Well, by, by looking at how much he's charging you. <laughs> well, that is true. He, I mean, I mean I've, I've had the misfortune of employing many lawyers over the years and they charge by the quarter hour. Yeah, and, he would uh, actually have a record by the quarter hour of yeah. everything everything he had done for that, that and, particular and, I mean, far you, be it, you, are, you make a very good point there, Mike. Far be it from me to suggest that some lawyers would charge for time they haven't put in. <laughs> I mean, you know, I used to say, how long did it take you to write that letter? Did it really take you two hours? You know, but anyway, so what is it that we are now looking at? Because we as we kind of hurtle towards Christmas, um, we can talk about, you know, the, the, the warnings that are still being put out about the possibility of vaccine passports and Plan B and all of that. I don't think that's coming. I don't know whether you have a view on that. But also, secondly, no, I don't. At, at the end of this year, um, as we start to kind of give Boris Johnson marks out of 10 for whatever he's been doing, 
Where is he exactly? Well, he's beginning to to feel mortal, isn't he? I mean, yeah. the opinion polls are moving against him. Um, we're back to politi- politics as a competitive sport, mm. which is uh, which is quite refreshing. Good after, news for uh, us. After five years of, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn, although mm. we've always got to remember that Jeremy Corbyn did briefly become competitive for about five minutes in, in 2017, yeah. where he nearly, nearly won that election, mm. or at least nearly uh, nearly ended up being prime minister in a hung parliament. Which yeah. is, uh, which, yeah. which is the, and also, I mean, he, he did, I mean, he, he did go into the actual polling day of 2019 thinking that he might win. And I mean, there were some of us who thought <laughs> if all you looked at was Twitter, that he was going to win. No, I don't, I don't think that was uh, 20, 2019 was always a lost, uh, a lost cause. Um, well, you should but, have told you know, Adam Bolton at Sky because he didn't seem to think so. But I think, yeah, well, maybe. But I think people could see could see now, and the next elections, you know, still still two and a half years away. Um, but people can see how how that could be a competitive contest. I mean, Keir Starmer, you know, not massively popular, but respected. I think people do think he's he's basically competent. I think uh, I tell you what. I think yesterday did him a, a world of good. I think he came back from his absence, forced or otherwise, um, having seen the performances of Angela Rayner, and I think he kind of upped his game slightly to make sure that yeah. people remembered that he is the leader. Well, and what was also interesting uh, the day before that was when he and Angela Rayner did a joint press conference to announce uh, to announce their plans. That was the press conference that, uh, that the prime minister tried to scupper by uh, by issuing his his proposals. Mm. Two minutes before Keir Starmer spoke, but that press conference was 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 interesting because it was the two of them together. Yes, uh, and and to have them operating as a partnership, I think, could be a very effective. It could. Uh, I mean, the bottom line for me, unfortunately for them, though, is that they're still unelectable because nobody really knows what they stand for. It's all very well bashing the Tories and banging on banging on about sleaze, but actually, when somebody says what did the Labour Party actually yeah. stand for, that question is still unanswerable, really, because they well, don't it, because uh, they don't it, know. And very difficult to, to answer, especially for two people who served loyally in Jeremy Corbyn's mm. uh, shadow cabinet. And, you know, for uh, Keir Starmer, who led the uh, attempt to overturn the, the Brexit referendum. I mean, the, those two things make it very mm. difficult for Labour to have a clear position. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, it's, it's two and a half years away. I mean, you know, Labour could could do a lot in two and a half well, years to set up. We'll come to that because I want to talk to you about the Northern Powerhouse scenario, but stay with us if you will, John. Uh, we'll just take a short break. John Rental is here, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. The, pop, the problem for, for Boris Johnson is that he will continue to face one crisis after another, no question. The problem for Keir Starmer is it doesn't matter how many crises Boris Johnson faces, Keir Starmer's just never going to win an election against him. That's what I think. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, of course, right here on Talk Radio. We are with the Veterans Railcard. If you've served at least a day in the armed forces, you could save a third on rail travel. Visit railcard.co.uk to apply. We're talking to John Rental uh, from the Independent, Chief Political Commentator, of course. Boris Johnson, John, this morning has written uh, in the Yorkshire Post, which is a touch of the Tony Blairs about it. It seems to me uh, I remember when they were basically calling for uh, uh, an end to only talking to national newspapers and only talking to uh, people who were um, in metropolitan elites. And Tony went off and gave interviews to Woman's Own and talked to various newspapers up and down the country. Um, but I've spotted a bit of a northerner, northerner's um, sort of speech problem here, because in this third paragraph, second paragraph, he says, because I believe you've been stood waiting on the platform for long enough. Do you think that's been put in there deliberately? Surely it should be standing waiting, shouldn't it? That is, 
That is extraordinary because uh, normally uh, Boris Johnson is very uh, precise uh, classical English. Um, yeah, no, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't, I hadn't spotted that uh, that nice little touch. Yes, but but I mean, I mean, he's being roundly criticised for cancelling half the services he said he was going to make, uh, but he doesn't seem to have quite grasped that idea when he's when he's written in the Yorkshire Post. It looks like he's doing everything he said he would do. Well, he's trying. He's trying to sell it as uh, you, you know, this is this is a this is a tweak to the proposals, which will actually mean that you get the benefit of uh, some of the upgrades earlier than you you would have done if I'd gone ahead with the original plan. That's his that's his argument. Uh, I imagine it'll go down extremely badly, and and he'll be slagged off all round. But uh, none of this is going to make any difference to to people's uh lives before the date of the next election mm. so it's really a question of uh, of whose promises you can believe uh, by the time you get to that election no quite and i think that's the other thing isn't it i'm hearing from all sorts of people this morning on different um interviews from the the, the northern powerhouse people basically saying that that this has not happened in the way that it was supposed to happen it's damaging to the tory party and the red wall seats it's damaging to the relationship between the north and the south it's damaging to the economy um and why is he doing it yeah, well, I think the overall perception, um, if if that takes hold, that you know he's he's neglecting the north, he's trying to scale back this uh, this um, bit of HS2, which um, you know, I mean, I don't, I personally don't think HS2 would help the north anyway, but uh, that's a sep that's a completely separate argument. If the perception grows that he is he's trying to save money by not uh, by not upgrading uh, the railways in the north, then I think that will. That will uh, damage him. But I mean, the thing about the Red Wall is all these places are, are intensely local. Mm. I mean, if you live in Accrington, you're not going to be interested in, in, in an upgrade on the uh, on the northeast line. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're a commuter in, in, in Manchester, then you're really annoyed about cancelled trains and overcrowded trains and all that. And you're not going to be very impressed by, you know, something that's happening in Leeds or Bradford. Right. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I was listening to one guy this morning describing the distances between some of these stations and, and the whole network, as it were, is actually shorter than the central line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, then, and that really does annoy people in the north when they I mean, because the Elizabeth line, the old crossrail. Yeah, uh, it's going to be opening in, in London. And that is going to be a fantastic new gleaming bit of infrastructure. The fact that just it's in time for everybody working from home two days a week. Well, exactly. I mean, and also it's a million years late and right. uh, way over budget. Well, you know, and, Christian uh, Walmart's written two books about the building of Crossrail and finished them both before Crossrail's been finished. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But the fact that it is going to open next year is really going to, I think, annoy a lot of people uh, outside London. Mm. Um, and there's nothing there's nothing Boris Boris Johnson can do about that apart right. from uh, apart from make empty promises. Yeah. So, so when I asked you just before we went to the break, what the kind of landscape is going to look like for Boris in the next sort of month up to Christmas, what is it going to look like? Is he going to just well, be trying to stay out of trouble? Is he going to try and push through uh, any particular bills? You know, what's going on? Because the, the huge big crises that we face, it seems to me at the moment, not least because of what happened in Liverpool on Sunday, is the migrant problem, which is still going on. You know, Priti yeah. Patel making promises that she can't keep. And, of course, the whole problem with, with prices, inflation, energy and all of that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think those those are two of the most important things that are going to affect the, the, the government in the in the new year. And the, and the other thing I would add to that is is the state of the NHS. And yeah. I think no, very uh, much so. I think the backlog at the NHS and I think I think the fact that ambulance response times um, are so bad. Yes. 
I think that really does, that does unsettle people. It yes, me. and it's not just ambulance response times. It's also the fact that when you do get an ambulance, they get you to the hospital, they don't admit you because you might not have had a COVID test. So you sit in an ambulance and there's been a report. That's out, right. That's just this week saying that as many as 12,000 people may have either been very seriously injured or died as a result of that. Well, I think that's right. And, and that's one of the causes of the, of, of the slow response times is that all these ambulances are sitting, ambulances are sitting in queues outside hospitals. Mm. Uh, because uh, because the A&E department can't let the patients in. Yeah. Um, so I do think all that is going to be a huge problem. And you're you're absolutely right. I mean, all this stuff about MP second jobs. I mean, it, it's it's going to fade. Yeah. Uh, probably probably now, um, because I think most of the newspapers have found have found the really uh, the the really shocking cases of, uh, of, yeah. of MPs on the make. But I mean, that's not going to stop Angela Rayner. Keep. I mean, she will keep banging on about the COVID uh, contracts yeah. and all that cronyism. Yeah. And I think, and I think those are very important things. John, listen, we're going to leave yeah. it there. Thank you very much indeed, John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at the Independent. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, let's talk to Bruce Williamson from the campaign group Royal Futures because there's a few sort of conflicting stories doing the rounds this morning about what exactly is happening on the railway network. There's a big report due out later on, which we'll bring you right here on Talk Radio. Um, but the answer to the question, is something improving or is it getting worse, is really quite difficult to determine. Let's find out what Bruce has to say. Bruce, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. It is tough for me, anyway, as a layman. You know, you know much more about the railway network than I do. I mean, Boris Johnson's piece in the Yorkshire Post would suggest that he's doing all sorts of great things that he promised he would do, and that he's not at all not doing the things that he also promised to do. So which one of those sort of narratives is correct? Well, obviously, you know, Boris Johnson being a politician would be inclined to put a positive spin on you know this this plan which we'll find out about uh, 11 o'clock today because yeah. the devil will be in the detail but there's no getting away from the fact that he's spending less money on rail investment than was previously promised and the eastern leg of hs2 is almost certain to be scrapped right. so i think there are issues in terms of you know what we're going to get for our money and and what you can do to improve the the experience for passengers in the north when you're spending less and and, yeah. and cutting part of a, a project. Yes, and I guess the question for those people who are going to be using the trains in that part of Britain uh, is, are they going to find themselves having a better service? Because his piece suggests that um, he may not be adding any journey time uh, quickness to the to the route, but there will be better and more efficient trains. People won't be standing around for as long. They won't have to wait for so many trains as they do now. So is it just a kind of efficiency drive in the end of the day? Well, no, I'm, I'm sure. That, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sure there will be some improvements for some passengers on some routes. Uh, you know, th this money is being spent on on new lines and, and upgrades and electrification, and so on, which is all very welcome. Mm. Uh, but you know, the, the big question is, uh, you know, how does that compare to the previous plans? Uh, and I suspect it's it's going to turn out to be not so good. I mean, he's claiming that he can he can match the journey time from Leeds to London. Mm. Um, with this new scheme without the eastern leg of HS2. Now, if he's able to, in reality, do this kind of smoke and mirrors and get more for less or get the same for less, you have to wonder, well, what was wrong with the previous plan if it was more expensive and no better than this current cheaper plan? Well, that's right. And that, I guess, is the uh, $64,000 question, as they say. But an awful lot of the local stuff that he's doing is only going to affect people locally. You know, so if you live in Manchester um, and something's happening that's improved the service of, say, between, I don't know, Leeds and Bradford, you don't really care, do you? 
Well, no, you don't. Obviously, uh, you know, you, you care about your services from your station. Um, the whole, you know, the, the Northern Powerhouse Rail thing, um, you know, is, is a sound bit of investment to bring those northern cities together, to make them as a sort of an industrial economic powerhouse to match London. Um, so if we can achieve that with this new scheme, so much the better. But, uh, you know, we definitely need it. It's, it's really important that we have those local connections and we have an integrated rail network and and you know what what i fear is we're looking at a little bit of a piecemeal approach mm. with this new scheme because it seems to me and i'm not someone that uses the train an awful lot but it seems to me that, that the train service as we currently know it is sort of creaking at the edges it's it's not um it hasn't got enough capacity it's very easily <clears throat> disabled by various events including weather um you know it doesn't run particularly efficiently the east coast and the west coast main lines have been troubled, I suppose, for quite a long time now, in the sense that it's hard to find decent franchises that can run them uh, and make any money out of them. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the capacity issue is is absolutely key to that. And we've, we've been given a little bit of a breathing space with COVID and the passenger numbers have gone down. But there's no doubt that the network as a whole is creaking at the seams. Yeah. And, you know, we need that sort of long-term sustained investment to... to, to give us the rail network we need for the future. If we don't make that investment, you know, the whole thing is going to come crashing down. You're absolutely right that, um, you know, a, a bit of disruption somewhere on the network can cause all sorts of knock-on consequences because we don't have those alternative routes and we don't have that spare capacity to deal with it. Exactly right. I mean, someone was telling me the other day, and I, could, I had to double-check it to see if it was true, that the last train back from Manchester to London is at 9.15 in the evening. That seems mad. I, I can well believe it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's not a route I've, I've, I use myself very much. But yeah, you, you will find these sorts of anomalies across the network, you know, and, and um, where, where the service, you know, just isn't comprehensive enough. Uh, and, and we need that, you know, and, and the government seems to be in other parts of the network, you know, reversing it, closing down certain services and, and, and squeezing timetables. And that's not what we need to yeah. see. And as far as HS2 is concerned, I mean, what are you expecting it to be uh, said in this report that's coming out, as you say, just after 11? Um, is it, uh, it's, we obviously know that it's not on time. It's presumably over budget. When are we actually yeah. going to be expected to be able to step onto it and take a train ride on it? Uh, it's got to be at least 10 years. I think it's 2035, 10. 2040. I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's the timetable. So, uh, that's yeah, hopeless, I mean, isn't it? We, it's, it's not great, you know, and it, I have concerns about the escalating cost of HS2, obviously. You know, we, we can't have a, a, a blank check for this thing as well while costs spiral. And there is an issue as well with other investment which hasn't represented uh, as, as good value for money as it, as it should do. Um, but again, you know, I, I don't want to present this as an either or thing. We need Northern, Northern Powerhouse Rail. We need electrification of the, the Midland Main Line. We need to finish off the electrification of the Great Western. You know, there's a, there's a shopping list. Or as long as your arm of things that we really need to do and we need all of it we don't need one or the other right exactly but i wonder but i also wonder if it is going to take another 10 years before we even see hs2 and uh, the capacity at the moment is going to be a problem for the next 10 years then and we're actually not going to yeah, be able is, to yeah. be in a position to to improve matters uh, for another 10 years and I, I don't wish to kind of tempt fate but i'm afraid in 10 years time i'll be lucky if i can go anywhere never mind get on a train Indeed, you know, and this is another problem that we've had, uh, you know, for, for decades with the railways, the sort of stop start nature, the feast and famine of it. You know, it, it's not good for the railways and, and it's not good for passengers who don't get the service they deserve. 
we need long-term investment and we need a, a consistent investment and we need to stick to the plans we're not cutting it and chopping and changing it as the uh, you know as the treasury has a bad head day and starts to cut things it's, it's really <laughs> bad for the railway well it really is and and i mean as, as as far as the actual capacity is concerned as well i mean presumably unless you put more railway actual track in there's not much you can do is there um you you can to some extent <clears throat> excuse me there's always tweaks you can make signaling uh, can help a lot I- improving signaling will give you more capacity on an existing bit of railway but yes you're absolutely right in many cases we need new lines mm. or we need doubling or quadrupling of existing lines to give us that capacity that we need there's there's no getting away from yeah. that really and without putting you on the spot bruce is the model that we're using wrong you know these separate fran- franchise companies that don't seem to be able to run terribly efficiently uh, which we pay bucket loads of subsidies to where people get quite wealthy uh, as, as shareholders and as, and as board members of these companies and then you know ine- inevitably they they have their franchise removed well yeah i mean a franchising see well franchising is dead franchising has died a natural death we still have a in theory, a privatised railway where we have <coughs> contractors running particular services, but it's all being run and managed by the Department for Transport and three major franchises are in public hands. So we do seem to be drifting back to a form of nationalisation with Great British Railways. And, and who would have bet a few years ago that it would be the Conservative Party that would be renationalising yeah. the railway? But in a roundabout way, that is what's happening, I think. Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Bruce Williams from there from the campaign group Rail Futures because there is a new report coming out. It will be out just after 11 o'clock. We'll bring you precisely what it says. An awful lot of what it says has been kind of telegraphed. We sort of know an awful lot about what is going to be in there. However, uh, what I need to know from you, uh, particularly if you are in the north of England, does it matter to you? Do you care? Because HS2 is costing an awful lot of money. It's not even going to be ready for another 10 years. They're saying you can't be able to get a train from Birmingham to Leeds. Does it matter? What does matter, of course, is whether the economy of the north of England is going to be affected, whether the powerhouse that they talk about in the north, uh, which was sort of set up uh, and started around the time when George Osborne was Chancellor of the Exchequer in David Cameron's Parliament. The big question is, does that actually matter to people in the north of England? The north of England is a place I don't go very often, but whenever I do go there, uh, it's often, uh, not that surprisingly, quite efficient. It runs quite well. It's got plenty of people making plenty of money. It's got plenty of people keeping more of their money because they don't have to spend it all uh, on ridiculously expensive travel systems like we do down in London. And I don't wonder whether, in fact, there's no need to improve anything. But you tell me, 0344-499-1000 is the number. Uh, I've got this from Andrew, who says, I've just had my missus on the phone crying because she's scared about her future. We were talking about this at the start of the show. She's a midwife and doesn't want to be forced to get a jab she doesn't need. Uh, This government have declared war on its own people, and they deserve to become casualties of it. Well, I don't know what you mean by that, but certainly people are very annoyed. And I'm hearing from a lot of different people now that they're worried that vaccine passports are going to become a thing. Not by law, not because the government is introducing them, but because individual companies might be introducing them and because, for example, you might be asked if you're going to an event or if you're going to be able to represent the company outside of the office that you'll have to get a vaccine passport in order to do that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Joe Hemmings about something other than that. Let's talk about chocolate because it's a much more pleasant, satisfactory uh, thing to do. Joe, a very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So, apparently, there's a secret and psychological sort of uh, speciality to eating chocolate. And there's something going on with what we can only describe as the old Christmas selection boxes. Now, I'm a big fan of chocolate. I'm not a big fan of selection boxes at Christmas because you always end up just eating too much chocolate. But what's going on? They say uh, finding your favourite festive chocolate uh, by Boxing Day having disappeared is not just (laughs) bad luck. There's something going on. What is it? (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, it is going on. So really, we all have our favourites and there's a percentage of people that have particular favourites in common. And they don't ever seem to put enough of them Mm. in the selection box. So, yeah, it's part of the Christmas tradition, really, to be fighting over, I don't know, the the purple one or whatever it is. Um, And you will always be left with those at the bottom that nobody likes. Now, they they do balance up their selection boxes to a degree. And actually, each chocolate is about 5p. So they're very good value for money. Mm. I have to say that. But... It's obviously a marketing thing to make sure you don't end up by Boxing Day with the ones that nobody wants and we're all like picking our fingers through desperately searching for one we do like. They want to make us buy two tins. Well, that's the trouble. I mean, everywhere I go now, right, I'm absolutely assailed by overburdening tins and boxes of everything. You know, you go into a local Sainsbury's or something and instead of just having a little display for the chocolate quality street tins, there's about a million of them and you're going... I don't want to buy more than one. I just want one. Is that okay? You know. Well, of course it's okay, but pile them high, sell them quick has yeah. been a sort of marketing strategy for a long time. So when you see that big tall tower of tins, you know, you kind of think, 
oh yeah but I'd get two I mean a lot of you might be very disciplined but a lot of people aren't because they don't want to run out of the ones that everybody likes uh so you get an extra one just in case they've doubled yeah. their sales and you know successful marketing well we do, I mean we do a thing now every day called shortage of the day which is slightly tongue-in-cheek about all the things that we're supposed to be running out of that we're not really running out of but I think people now have a fear of running out of everything don't they yeah they have a fear I mean I had to I got a frantic a message from my son about a month ago going mom buy the pigs in blankets now <laughs> I mean, really i mean, I mean come on read somewhere there's gonna be a shortage. yeah but there's always a, they, they say every year there's gonna be a shortage of pigs in blankets every year and then <laughs> uh, in december they come out miraculously and say oh thank goodness we're not gonna have one after all it's gonna be fine but we might have a shortage of turkeys and you just uh, go oh, they... come off it you know <laughs> They've just said there are enough turkeys now, apparently. Well, they have. Maybe not the ones we want. I mean, it is bonkers and it is designed to kind of almost panic us into purchasing early. I mean, who's got a freezer big enough to put a turkey in? I don't know. But, you know, that it's designed to make sure that we book our shops if they're being delivered or we're collecting them because mm. we don't want to be the ones that, you know, are, are the guys that didn't do it quickly enough and suddenly we don't have a turkey, God forbid, or yeah. pigs in blankets. So, yeah, it's all part of the, it's part of the game. And I think this year particularly, because people missed out on Christmas last year, that there's a lot of enthusiasm for starting Christmas early, whether that's festive parties or putting your tree up or ordering your shopping. It's yes. all part of a bigger picture of us needing Christmas earlier than we did last year when it was effectively cancelled. Well, I feel as though Christmas has started a lot earlier this year, don't you? I mean, I walk around now and I see more Christmas trees out and about outside pubs, outside restaurants. There's Christmas trees. You know, the lights are all up. I, I went past um, the Strand the other night um, yeah. and, the, and the lights are not only up, uh, they're all lit already. Lit. <laughs> I know. I saw them going on the other day. I mean, it's not, uh, even, yeah. it's not even December yet. No, it's mid-November. I mean, this is very unusual mm. that this is happening, but I do think it's a direct result of of people driving that, that desire to kind of have that sense of freedom and celebration earlier. Yes. Because it signifies something quite important given what was going on this time last year yeah but i guess this time last year november was kind of locked down wasn't it i seem to remember they shut yeah. all the pubs again is, is, is my only way of gauging what was going on i seem to remember <laughs> i couldn't get into the horseshoe <laughs> well they did and so people were very nervous about buying anything right. whether it's food or presents because they didn't know what was going to happen mm. Whereas this year, we're not particularly in a great state now, but <laughs> it looks like we're going to have Christmas and we're going to enjoy it and we're going to start it as early as possible to maximise the pleasure, really. Okay. Well, now I'm going to start asking you some personal questions, which you may or may not wish to answer. First, uh, apparently in a tub of celebrations, there are 12 Snickers, but only six <laughs> Galaxies. Um, <laughs> do you have a particular favourite? Um, I actually think I prefer the Snickers. So I, I'm yeah, happy the box of celebrations. They are great though. The, those yeah. tiny chocolates are really good. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very fond of those. In a tub yeah. of roses, there are seven orange creams, but only four truffles. I'm not a big fan of the cream um, ones, to be honest. I quite like the strawberry cream. Oh, not, yeah, oh, and you... the fudge are my favourites. I'm not. I quite like soft centers. Yes, but I prefer the truffle in that case. No. Do you remember when they used to make the giant purple quality street that you could buy, which I was do. like about that size? They were great. I think they've stopped making them now. I think they have too. They were magnificent. They were tremendous, weren't they? But it also <laughs> shows you, doesn't it, that you can't go up. You can go down. It's like when they made the double or the large Big Mac. It was disgusting. It was so big that you were kind of going, oh, I'm not eating that. That's horrible. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, that's whereas if you made a small one, 
they would be much more popular a bit yeah i think they would i mean interesting with with the selection boxes there's always somebody's dissecting them every year not just their contents but their value for money have this chocolate shrunk have this, has the packaging got smaller i remember big argument years about years ago about quality street tins having shrunk but they're still the same price so it's a real kind of yardstick <laughs> of people getting value for money i think yeah they but should actually, use it as something to do with the sort of economic basket of currency shouldn't they <laughs> <laughs> but they actually are very good value they're very cheap per chocolate so if you've got a few left over at the end i've just had a discussion on Twitter with someone who likes the toffee pennies. I mean, really? really? So I'm going to send her all my toffee pennies. Okay. Uh, you know, well, I, I call it, I'm looking at Freddo and Friends, which I've never had. Dairy milk selection contains 26 chocolates, four treat-sized buttons, eight Freddo caramel, four Freddos, and ten mini fudges. I don't like the sound of any of that. <laughs> I don't mind the mini fudges, but I think that's probably for kids. Might You might be a little bit. Uh, maybe so. that's why I don't like the look of it then. And then Quality <laughs> yeah. Street, right? Quality Street, 67 chocolates for four quid. That's a lot. That's good. That's five five, five coconut eclairs, which I quite like. Eight orange creams, no. Four caramel swirls. Eight strawberry delights. Six milk chock blocks. Six toffee fingers. Six toffee pennies. Four green triangles. Now, the green triangles I like. Five orange chocolate crunch. Ten fudge. Five purple ones. And a partridge and a pear That's tree. pretty good for four quid, isn't it? It's very good. That's what I mean. It's very good value. There's too much toffee in there. There's a yeah. doubling up of toffee. We've got 12 toffees in there altogether. No, I don't want to lose a tooth or a filling over Christmas. No. So I avoid those. And what other rubbish do you buy? Do you buy like uh, the mince pies um, and the kind of uh, all the other, the chocolate log and all that sort of stuff? I do. I've got an interesting situation in my household because it's my birthday, Christmas Day, and it's also my son's birthday, Christmas Day. Oh, that's quite a coincidence. So it's kind of a big deal. So, wow. yeah, I'm afraid I go for the lot. So double wham triple whammy celebration really so i have to do it all <laughs> i've got a question from somebody can what the hell is montelimar i like montelimar that's a kind of oh, nougat no. nougat isn't it it's nougat a nougat it's, it's like the toffee thing you'll lose a filling yeah and then we know where to go over christmas no definitely not definitely not no well listen a delight <laughs> to talk about something interesting other than covid migrants you know <laughs> You know, the lockdown. Indeed. Leading, you know, everything else. The issues of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Chocolate's very important. It keeps us happy. Very. Thank you. Very nice to see you, Joe. If I don't talk to you before, have a lovely Christmas and birthday. What amazing, uh, an amazing coincidence that to have your own birthday and your son's birthday on Christmas Day. Extraordinary stuff. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, a couple of tweets for you to read out as well. Uh, got one here. Got to laugh, uh, says uh, uh, the black cat. Uh, that Labour shadow transport plank saying us in the north have lost trust with no HS2. No wonder they can't win because no one wants it up here. Maybe he wants to talk to his elected public and find out what we actually want. HS2 certainly isn't it. And uh, Jake says currently you can self-declare exemption. So if your work sent you somewhere that asked you for a COVID passport, you would declare yourself to be exempt and they cannot challenge this under the law. Same rules as masks. It's on the government website. Well, it's similar to what's going on currently here on the London Underground Network, because if you get on the London Underground Network, there are uh, signs everywhere saying you must wear a mask in order to travel uh, on this network. And if you do not, you may run the risk of being barred from travelling or you may risk a fine. Now, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any new law passed that makes that uh, in any way enforceable. And I don't see anybody trying to enforce it because an awful lot of people that do travel on the underground network are not wearing masks at all and nobody's asking them to so 
I'm not quite sure how it's all working. I wonder whether this stealth uh, is going on, this kind of mission creep is going on, because some people are demanding it in the same way that some companies are asking for people uh, to show that they have had either a, a, a negative test or some kind of vaccine passport before they can go anywhere. Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician, political commentator, of course, as well. Jamie, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad at all. I had a very interesting conversation with one of your compadres yesterday. I don't know if you heard the the woman in the Swansea cinema who basically said, we're not doing it. Uh, And if you turn up and come and see anything here or you want to come to a party or whatever, we're not going to ask you for a vaccine pass. She wasn't sure if that was breaking the law or not, which is interesting because I don't know whether it is either. No, I, I'm not really sure either, Mike. Uh, and I suppose it'll be a good test case. And and we, we I think you've been talking this morning about this kind of vaccine passport creep yeah. across the country. Uh, you know, my partner went to London for a kind of an NHS conference uh, probably about four or five weeks ago now. Right. And she found out a couple of days before that she needed a vaccine passport to, to go to that venue. So I think whilst they're in place in Scotland and Wales and then Northern Ireland are voting for them, there does seem to be this huge creep within England as well. And and if we're just looking at the facts and figures on these, Mike, you know, Austria had vaccine passports, cases through the roof. Um, you've got Germany, cases are higher in Germany now than they've ever been. Yeah. And they've got vaccine passports. Republic of Ireland had vaccine passports and they've now brought curfews in and mandatory working from home because ultimately these vaccine passports, Mike, um, they're not really doing what, well, when you say what they were meant to do on the tin, I think that the main thing for these, Mike, was a couple of things, I think. The first one was to try and coerce people into having a vaccine. Well, if we look at the data on vaccines, they've not really moved at all over the last uh, 18 months and and stuff. So that's a big problem there, Mike, I think. So we we need to kind of look at the facts and figures. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right, because the problem with all of this, right... What is it? What is it? Is there something that, that he needs or she needs? I mean, I don't mind if you bring them in and have them sit on your lap. It's fine. Um, you know, the thing is that, you know, the nonsense, as you pointed out, I think the last time you and I spoke, is your son, I think, had been sent home from school. You said that you had contacted COVID, but you could have gone out if you wanted to uh, without telling anyone and shown a vaccine passport to get into a venue. And yet you were live with, with the virus and, and they wouldn't know that, right? No, indeed that, Mike. And, and and what's interesting, actually, with my son is that I think about 13, 14 people in the class all caught COVID. And, and some of the children didn't. But the ones who didn't, from what I gather, uh, previously had COVID. So one of the things that seems to be missing through a lot of this policy is kind of natural immunity. And the ONS released some interesting statistics yesterday, Mike. So I'll just quickly rattle through some of those. Mm. They were looking at the probability of kind of catching COVID. And and what they were shown is that if you're kind of vaccinated, if you've had a booster or had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine in the last three months, you're probably 80% less likely to test positive for COVID than if you've not had a vaccine at all. Okay, so that's a good thing. You can clearly see the effect of kind of the vaccine waning. So it's 80% less likely to test positive than an unvaccinated person for a booster or or a recent second dose in the last few months. It's only 50% less likely if you've had the kind of the dose over six months ago. So you can see that it's not as effective. But what's more interesting in all of this, Mike, as well, is they also looked at people who've had the infection before versus those who have never had the infection. And the reduction is remarkable there as well, that you're 80% less likely to test positive for COVID if you've had COVID in the past versus somebody who's never had COVID. And, And we just seem to have forgotten all about natural immunity mm. within the country at the moment. And and that's going to play into the, all the care workers who've been sacked, more likely to have caught it than anybody else because of their front line. NHS staff as well, Mike, we've got about that. And then 
Boris this week talking about changing the goalposts on who's triple vaccinated if you're going to have a vaccine bar. So, well, I've just come out the back end of COVID, Mark. I've had two vaccines, but I don't see the point of having a booster when I've just caught COVID mm. and got over it. And yet this morning we see a piece in the Telegraph which is basically saying uh, from the UK Health Security Agency that I've never heard of until today, uh, they're basically saying if you've had COVID as a child, i.e. a 12-year-old to 15-year-old, um, you should wait three months and then get a vaccine. So they're now not only saying that kids should be vaccinated against it, they're saying that kids who have had it should be vaccinated against it. And you're going, why? Well, it's just a waste of public resources on this, Mike. So the UK Health uh, Agency, basically, it's a rebrand of Public Health England. Uh, they decided that Public Health England weren't doing the right job for the pandemic. So I think they just moved the deck chairs around and created a new department. Oh, so that's Mike. the name that's... of it now. So it's now called UK, but it's the UK. Because I remember when Matt Hancock did away with public uh, with NHS England um, and said, we're going to call it something else. And then they kept calling it NHS England for about the next three months. Yeah, so this is the new name for it. And, 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 and if you look at it, Mike, that... And in America, they're pushing the vaccines now down to kind of five-year-olds yeah. and, and like it's going to carry on going down. I think, you know, we seem to have forgotten this whole natural immunity that exists. It's quite clear. I think they're pushing to get people to have the vaccine because you want to stop the NHS being overrun. But, you know, it's very limited in terms of the number, the impact on children. We know vulnerable children, Mike, and, and already having the vaccine. But... I think that the problem you've got, Mike, is that you keep rolling this vaccine out, taking the resources out. And remember, so there'll be a lot of children, Mike, because we know the cases are rife among children. Very few of them show any symptoms at all. Sometimes it just happens to be if you've tested positive because you was asked to go for a test because somebody else had a few symptoms. How does a parent know if their child has had COVID in the last three months, if they've had it, but they showed no symptoms and never tested positive for it? How the hell do they know about that in terms of deciding if they go for a vaccine or not? You know, we should be testing people for antibodies. The ONS does a random survey across the country, Mike, for people with antibodies, and it's way over 90%. The vast majority of people have antibodies in the country, whilst cases are starting to uptick now in the UK, Mike. And they're probably going to go up because Germany are up, Austria are up, France are up, Republic of Ireland up, Belgium, Netherlands, the whole of Europe's going up. Well, it's cases that time of year, will... isn't it? You would expect things to go up in November, wouldn't you? Exactly. And, and I think they're probably going to go up now until about January time. But cases isn't the key metric to look at. Let's look at hospitalizations. And what the booster vaccine is doing, Mike, for those people who are vulnerable, especially the elderly people, because the booster does reduce the chance of you catching the virus. It doesn't get rid of it completely. We know we know that people who've got vaccines still will catch the virus. We are seeing cases come down in the elderly. And we, if you start thinking about how have we managed the flu respiratory viruses over the last kind of 50 to 60 years, since the vaccines there, Mike, we vaccinate the vulnerable and then that reduces the pressure. I think the problem we're going to have, Mike, and I think I said this on the show several months back to you is the nhs cannot cope in a normal year mm. we're going to basically because these covid numbers are all over the news every single day covid patients are a fraction of what they were last year they're half this time last year despite cases being higher deaths are a fraction of what they were this time last year but cases will go up inevitably there'll be patients in hospital and people will be saying oh we need to close down the country because the nhs can't cope but the nhs couldn't cope mike probably before COVID. But the NHS is always being sort of threatened with closure and threatened with being overwhelmed, but it's never actually been overwhelmed. I mean, even back in January, when we had, what, a thousand cases a day going into hospital, it wasn't overwhelmed then. So if it wasn't overwhelmed then, it's not likely to ever be overwhelmed, I don't think. And the thing that worries me is that they're now sort of actively looking 
for reasons to say that it might be overwhelmed. I mean, I got a text the other day, and I don't even know how they got my number from Ipsos Mori, right? And it says this. We recently sent a letter inviting you to register for a swab test kit. Taking part will help monitor infection rates and new variants of the virus. Uh, it takes just five minutes to register. Um, you can imagine what my response was. I mean, they're basically looking for other variants now that they can say are happening in the world so that they can tell us that they need to clamp down on something again, you know? And it seems to me that that is a ludicrous state of affairs because we've got another story here this morning uh, where it says the COVID-19 infectious variant of Delta now accounts for one in 10 COVID cases in England. Well, so what would be my response? No, it's becoming a bit of an industry, all of this testing. Yeah. I've, I've seen some startup looking at doing um, or trying to develop a test for a cold. So we can, uh, and it's just going to start creeping in now where companies will say, you've got to show that you haven't got a cold before you can come yeah. to the office. You know, well, do you know what's even more bizarre uh, in, in, in my world this, this past sort of week or so? One of my kids had a, a bit of a bad cold and the school's advice was to go to school. And you're going, sorry. I thought if the kid had something infectious, you were supposed to stay home. Apparently not. They're worried, apparently, because he might have missed too much uh, of, of his class. And you go, he didn't go at all last year. You know, what are you doing about that? Oh, nothing. OK, then. It's mad. No, it, it is mad, Mike. I think, you know, the, 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 as long as we're testing and there's significant testing, we are one of the biggest testers in Europe. We will continue to find cases. Now, I think that the key metric in all of this is ultimately, Mike, is going to be the number of hospitalizations and deaths. Now, they are significantly lower, but a vaccine passport, if you just go back to that kind of policy, where people who've been double jabbed can still pass it on, pass it on to somebody else who's double jabbed, and the vaccines will help reduce kind of hospitalizations and deaths. That's just these vaccine passports are absolute nonsense, Mike. You know, an important thing is whilst we see in the waning of the vaccine, it's an interesting statistic on this one, though, Mike. The waning of the vaccine means that we are seeing more cases among kind of vaccinated people because it kind of the chances of you catching the virus is starting to creep up with the waning of the vaccine. Yeah. But from some of the epidemiologists at um, the UK Health Agency are saying actually that even if you do catch it, the the risk of you going into hospitalizations or deaths. Is, hasn't been affected at all no. with regards to you know, the vaccine. And so the whole point of the vaccine, Mike, was to reduce all of the thing. Nothing has really changed. We knew when we opened the country up, the virus would continue to spread. If we tested every single year for the last 30 years for the flu, you know, we would have get some people saying we should have locked down every single mm. winter for the last 30 years. It's not an area we can do, Mike. We've got to learn to live with it. Like yeah. we said in the summer, and things haven't changed from that perspective. No, exactly right. And as far as more people being tested positive who have been vaccinated, that could also just be a numbers game, couldn't it? Because more people are now vaccinated than before. So people who are getting it are more likely to be vaccinated because there's a lot more vaccinated people than unvaccinated people. So it's a simple numbers game, I would have thought. And the bottom line for me uh, is that if all of these people who keep testing positive are as large as we are being told then the combination of the numbers being vaccinated, the numbers of people who must have had the disease, it must be practically 100% of the population, wasn't it? Well, it's going to be getting closer to that, Mike. There'll still be people who are unvaccinated who've never caught the virus, and those are probably the ones that are the highest risk. But remember, there still is still a virus that's very deadly for the elderly people. And you only got to look at the vaccination stats, Mike. So, you know, we've got in the oldest age groups, way over 95% of people have had a vaccine. Some of them would have caught COVID. Sadly, some of people would have caught COVID and sadly died as well. So, so ultimately, Mike, I think 
the only route out of this whole kind of mess, if you want to call it, with regards to COVID, looking likely across different countries as well, is it's going to be everybody catching the virus and then getting over it. What the vaccine has done for many people is that if people have caught the virus, whereas, say, in the past, just by looking at the statistics, they would have ended up kind of sadly dying from the virus, that's significantly lower. If you look at the moment, we've got about 40,000 cases in the country, Mike, and the average number of deaths per day is around 150. Now, some of those would have sadly died anyway, but some of them, you know, have survived because if we look at when there was 40,000 cases in the past, we were getting way over 1,000 deaths per day. And I, and I think when we're going into this winter now, as we suddenly headed towards it, I don't think there's anything different to what we would have expected. It's respiratory virus, which increases in the winter, which would put a little pressure on the health system. The key question is, Mike, what has the health system done to prepare for this winter? Has it done anything different? Well, nothing. No, I mean, I've been saying this since the beginning of January. I said, what, what is the NHS going to do to make sure that if and when the next big wave hits, if it ever does, which it doesn't sound like it will, um, they'll have learned nothing. They'll have done nothing uh, and it will all be exactly the same as it was last year and the year before that and the year before that because every single bleeding year we're told the NHS is going to, you know, keel over. And then the problem you've got as well, Mike, especially with people saying, oh, we need to bring in more restrictions is the reason kind of there's a lot more pressure, say, on the NHS this year compared to this time last year. It's not specifically down to the COVID problem because I say the number of patients in hospital is a half of what it was and the patients that do go in are having milder illnesses on average because of the vaccine effect. What we've got, Mike, is significant numbers of people coming forward because they've missed out on healthcare over the last 18 months, you know, with mental health issues, Mm. with heart problems, with strokes. And, and, And another thing that's kind of remarkable, it doesn't get talked about a lot, Mike, is that, you know, the number of people dying in their home, private homes, because well, we get the figures every single week, you can track where people are dying. And, and the most recent week, actually, it was staggering. There was a 41% above average, the number of deaths just in the most recent week alone of people dying at home. Now, some of those will be people who we may have seen a step change now in life, Mike, where some people choose to perhaps have their last days of life at home mm. rather than going to, say, hospital so they can be around their loved ones. But these age groups of these excess deaths, they are in people in the ages of 30, 40. You know, these aren't people generally towards the end of life. And that is a worrying statistic, mm. Mike. How many people out there have missed out or yeah. felt, I don't want to go and phone the GP, I can't get an appointment, and then they just drop in dead. It's just it's remarkable. Yeah, it really is extraordinary. Good to talk to you, Jamie. Got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician, political commentator, of course, formerly uh, with the ONS, Office of National Statistics. But what on earth is going on out there? Why are we finding that somehow uh, vaccine passports are being introduced sort of by stealth in lots of different ways that we didn't know about? Um, and why is it, for example, that so many people uh, are still testing positive and yet they're not troubled they're not going into hospital and why as jamie says there's so many people dying in their own homes from other things what is going on there this is talk radio this is talk radio across the uk online on dab plus and on the talk radio app the independent republic of mike gray on talk radio welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk radio now as if you didn't know um 
You know that Harry and Meghan are in a quest to try and keep their lives private. They're not really interested in having to do an awful lot of publicity about themselves or around themselves. They don't really want uh, anyone to talk to them. They don't really want anyone to take any pictures of them. They certainly don't want anybody to write anything about them that they haven't previously approved. Uh, most recently, of course, we found Meghan Markle uh, on the plank of the week list again uh, because, of course, she admitted to a court that she had misled them unintentionally because she forgot that she had actually briefed a couple of authors to write some nice things about her. Well, you know how shy and retiring she is. Well, here's another example of something that's going to go out later on tonight on American television. It's Meghan Markle talking to Ellen DeGeneres. This is really, you said the last talk show you did was like, I don't know, another decade ago, but you yes. used to come to this lot to audition all the time. Oh my gosh, completely. I would park at gate three and then I would scoot on over and what was so nice is the security guards here would always say, break a leg, we hope you get it. So the drive-in today was very different. <laughs> the drive-in today was very different because she's not looking for a job anymore because she married a prince. That's right. So she's invaded her own privacy once again uh, by giving an interview to Ellen DeGeneres, who has been roundly criticised as one of the most awful and ghastly women in American TV. Now, apparently, Meghan doesn't care about that because obviously Ellen DeGeneres still uh, has a show which is watched by quite a few people. And as far as not being on a talk show for years and years and years or decades, perhaps, has she forgotten that she was on with Oprah Winfrey? Now, you might not call it a talk show, but it was an interview and it wasn't that long ago. And she never stops talking. And considering uh, that she's already announced that they're not going to come to Christmas, they won't come to Sandringham, uh, they won't come to the estate to see the Queen. Harry doesn't care, apparently, about his uh, mother, uh, or his uh, grandmother, I should say. The Queen, who's 95, who's in not great health, who he may not see uh, ever again. But they can't be bothered coming for Christmas, because why would you? I mean, why would they? Unbelievable, aren't they? These two? Absolutely staggering. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.